Hi there, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Still Into It? A podcast with me, your host, Mikey. And I realise that it's been quite a bit of time since my last episode, about a year or so. And yeah, that's just down to life's getting busier. Thought I'd have more time to do it and ended up not having time to do it. Have been doing some other fun and interesting things, including happening, having a couple of live gigs with Morrow, which has gone super, super well and it's really fun. Um, today's episode is going to be a bit longer than previous ones. And I think this will be my format for it going forward, where I'm going to take a bit more time between episodes and just have a bit more content and stuff to talk about. As ever, massive thanks to my friend Kieran, aka Rumour, for doing sterling production work and sharing this very small room in South Manchester with me as we record this. So, nice one. Yeah, there he is. Um, really hope you enjoy what's coming up on the show. So the subject of today's episode is the Swedish post-metal band Cult of Luna, and basically they are the most important band in my life. Uh, In terms of their influence, the amount of time I've spent with their albums, the things that I've done or created because I've heard their music, uh, their influence, I think, on me cannot really be overstated enough. Um, That's not to say that necessarily my all-time favourite band or a band I spend all of my time listening to, but just to kind of contextualise as the most important influence, they are definitely the one. And uh, as a brief description, Cult of Luna are a, as I said, a Swedish post-metal band. For those who don't know, quick definition of post-metal is the use of kind of post-rock dynamics and quieter, more melodic music. Say, I'm being really basic here, but in the style of, say, Quiet and Mogwai or Explosions in the Sky, and then fusing that with kind of bigger, sludgier riffs and just a general wall of sound approach to music. Um, The most derivative description I could give would be quiet bit, five-minute build-up, big riff. And Cult of Luna, I think, at the time perhaps got a bit of stick for being identified as the Neurisis band, which was basically a slightly derogatory term from... People saying they sounded just like Isis and Neurosis, and I just completely disagree with that description, and I really love both Isis and Neurosis, but for me, Cult of Luna were doing something very, very different, and again, as I said, the kind of band who've had the most impact and influence, it is definitely the guys from northern Sweden. So, Cult of Luna's origins lie in the Umea hardcore scene, which was a hotbed of vegan and straight-edge hardcore bands in the late 90s. It's where the likes of Refused and DS13 also originated from. And I think there's something quite interesting there when often music press or music journalists start to describe these regions or areas which are like hotspots of creativity. And I think the thing they never quite think about or contextualise is actually those places are also just really boring. And the reason that people make such amazing bands or creative projects there is because there is nothing else to do. So basically, Cult of Luna had members in a hardcore band called Eclipse. You can find their demo on YouTube. It's well worth a look. And you can definitely hear some of those elements that would start to come through in Cult of Luna's, Cult of Luna's music, as but just them coming from more of like a fast hardcore band. And so I think it's perhaps just where I've discovered them in my life, what kind of hardcore scene or community that I associate them with, um, or just, you know, those intangible things of those bands where you just spend a lot of your formative years listening to them. Um, It's just them having this huge impact on me. And so where I think I'm coming from with this episode, like the main thrust or idea is that I think that Cult of Luna are the best example of hardcore kids who became really amazing at their instruments and have transcended hardcore into something else and in turn are the band that you transcend and grow through that phase of your life and onwards and into something else. So a lot of the material of this podcast will be me discussing my personal big three records from Cult of Luna. These are The Beyond, Salvation and Somewhere Along the Highway. 
I'm going to chat a bit about each record, my time with that album and kind of when I was discovering it, and then how it looks as part of a slightly longer thread and narrative that I've drawn through just spending so much time on those albums. Um, I'm also going to be talking about mental health and masculinity and perhaps the things that Cult of Luna have in store for us for the future. So yeah, I really hope you enjoy listening. Okay, so starting off with the beyond, going back to 2003 and me discovering Cult of Luna via them playing at the garage in North London with Poison the Well and Thrice. And yeah, just going back to what a bonkers era 2003 was in terms of heavy music. So I was there doing street team stuff for Victory Records. I was writing for a couple of fanzines at the time and you kind of get some of those contacts that way and it's really interesting now thinking back to that time of like promotion was going along lines of people queuing for this gig and giving out free cds and stickers and loads of really bad metalcore record labels were getting in on emo becoming massive and so we'd do loads of these street team things and i'm pretty sure that trust kill records was riding very hard on it uh victory records is doing the same and it was just a really strange time where you didn't have a huge amount of like internet uh, presence for these kind of bands. And you would have really legitimately super heavy American hardcore bands supporting or touring bands who are a bit more polished and on the kind of shinier side of things. And I think at that time, that was just really a way that it was the only way you were going to be able to see some of these bands from the US that you really, really wanted to. Um, so yeah, it was a strange time white studded belts, Macbeth shoes, black swooshy spot haircuts, Atticus shirts, pinch harmonics, health S DVDs. I think you get the general uh, gist of it. Um, so anyway, Cult of Luna are touring the beyond at this point, their second album. And they are a band doing what Earache, their label at the time, would dub apocalyptic noise core and was really putting them alongside the likes of Beecher and Johnny Truant and various kind of chaotic metalcore bands where basically there was a huge influence from Botch, Early Converge and Cave-In. And that was what was so amazing about Cult of Luna in that era was that they were basically the purest antithesis of how chaotic and overly time signatory lots of that metalcore was. If you think about how crazy and chaotic most of those structures were, they were just the complete opposite and instead distilled a huge amount of aggression into 10 minute long songs each of which had about two to three riffs tops and just the sense of impact they had was astonishing the vocals were so blunt and heavy and were just this really intense form of a hardcore bark so just like getting hit by a concrete breeze block and i always thought that when i first heard cult of luna that the vocals were what kept them as a hardcore band yet also the heaviest and slowest hardcore band in the world. And again, just context-wise, I'd not really heard vocals done like that or considered in such a way. It's not the kind of Cookie Monster death metal vocal. It's not like grinding or like kind of screeching or rasping or any of that kind of high kind of stuff. It was just this really, really blunt force. And again, I had really limited frames of reference at the time, but you know, I was 18 and seeing post-rock dynamics in hardcore again, basically just playing really slow and using a whole wall of sound approach was really incredible. Um, not to mention them having a really minimal stage presence. So basically, they just had four lamps behind the band, a lot of dry ice, no lights on stage. And you would just see these silhouettes headbanging really slowly. And it really just added to that kind of force and just like singular power of them playing. And of course, the Poison the Well crowd, I think, really did not get it. Um, about six months later, Cult of Luna were touring with the Dillinger Escape Plan, who I think were a far more suitable pairing just in terms of being a band who are far more comfortable, I think, being really, really experimental and creative. And again, they were playing material from the beyond, and I was completely sold on it at that point. Um, so yeah, to discuss the beyond, it is just, I have this, this association with this album where it's just this obsidian, 
really, really heavy, heavy thing. Just uh, this sense of kind of inner city weight and concrete to it. It's very urban, very suffocating. And I would listen to this record hungover in my first year at university and would be getting about three to four songs in at a time. But just the idea of sitting and listening all in one go was just way too intense. And I really put this album alongside a few others as being essential for attuning my ear to the wall of sound approach to music. That way that you can hear melodies that are really buried or just test and develop your ability to endure something that is just so monolithic. There are, I think, about five to six overdubs of guitar tracks on this, and you can just really feel that. The bass tone on it is insane and has a huge amount of churn and grit to it. Uh, according to interviewers with Johannes at the time, their guitarist, they were basically obsessed with just trying to record the heaviest thing that they could. And, you know, when the band is just playing all in and all just hammering down on the same riff, it is just really, really heavy. And yeah, this is where I consider them to be this hardcore band who've just evolved and gotten really awesome at their instruments. And what strikes me now about the Beyond is how much melody I can hear in it. And even the more discordant or slightly atonal moments, um, there are sections that I think this sounds like an incredibly slow version of His Hero Is Gone or Tragedy. And some retrospectives I've read on the album have shown that part of this record's lineage is late 90s metalcore, and I think especially Unbroken are a very, very important part of it. But I also think, you know, the murkier side of Crust and Sludge is in there as well, and the main riff on Receiver sounds like it should be off of Vengeance. The song Arrival ends with the night is upon us and the enemy never sleeps. You can basically just hear the D-beat like waiting to kick in on that that section, and... The final two songs of The Beyond are really where you can see them getting a bit more creative and kind of hinting at what's to come. So they're really starting to explore a bit more space as they open up their arrangements. Uh, about three minutes into Deliverance, there's these kind of slower, sparser chords. It's all getting a bit quieter with various kind of tribal drum parts. And then from that, you go into Further, which is just an astonishing song. It's one riff and the tension that they create from this is just incredible um there's this midsection with ever slower drum beats cascading downwards into a sample of a building collapsing and then releasing into one of their most mel melancholic and melodic sections of the entire record and it's just breathtaking i get chills every time i hear it i I'm taken back to driving in a van in a rainy Gothenburg and like looking out the window and just hearing this song and being in that space is just like every time I listen to it, I'm really taken back to that moment. And it's the way they just record it into one huge riff, like the amount of weight they play of each note, it just has so much impact. And I think it's really fitting as, as well because they would never, ever play this heavy again in terms of just brute bludgeoning force. And as we know, there's far more ways to be heavy than just being bludgeoning. So another aspect of this record is basically its theme, and it comes out in 2003. There are samples from Noam Chomsky on it. Uh, I think it's really contextualized as part of what you could consider the anti-globalization movement or the kind of protests that were happening around that time around summit gatherings. I really think of the book No Logo or One No Many Yeses as being alongside this. And I think that the Chomsky sample they include at the end of Further is just really, really prescient and quite scary. And so I'm actually just going to read it out. And so it starts with, um, and of the hundred dominant economic units in the world today, the hundred largest economic units, that's the word that they use, was units. 49 are countries and 51 are corporations. Now, you digest that for a second. What does that mean? It means that corporations are the driving force of decision-making today. And corporations are not concerned with human rights. They're not concerned with human life. They're not even concerned with the proper wage for the people that are working for them. So what kind of decisions are going to be made on our behalf by this economic power? these corporate states, I call them. Oh, there's going to be hell to pay, as they say. 
And so, yeah, that, that sample, I think, you know, you just listen back to it now and just really feel like the more things change, the more they stay the same. And although I think there's nothing direct or so like blatantly obvious in the record as like them saying, this is the thing that I'm screaming about. I think if you look at the way the lyrics have quite a lot of personal reflection and allegory that it's dealing with estrangement and alienation in late capitalism. And again, hardcore is that perfect time of just being like, I'm raging at the world and I'm 20 years old and I'm furious with everything. And, you know, it's that constant channeling of anger into an outward world view. And I think it really has so much to do with like adolescence and masculinity at that time. And, you know, being young and pissed with the world and you really want to go and explore that like injustice outwardly, but you're not really creating very much space for self-reflection. The lyrics have a huge amount of like fire and rebirth and ashes and it's all, you know, really quite traumatic. And I think it just links to that whole time of just being really brazen and so convinced that you're right. And the whole kind of strength of your outrage indicates how right on you are. And again, you're always just expressing that outwards and particularly on you know, you're furious at the nature of power and control and injustice in the world. And it's that real time of like, corporations are evil, man. And like, you need to boycott this company and really just that whole kind of time. And it's it's so interesting thinking back to that era where boycotting and opposing things were really tangible and physical and material. And you contrast that now to the power that say Amazon or Facebook have, and it's so much more insidious and difficult to grasp. And so, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, talking down on any of that time. It's just a really informative and important period in terms of growing. But yeah, it's definitely like being super right on and just not having a huge amount of space of like self-reflection. And so, yeah, again, the artwork for this time is really early 2000s. There's a lot of pho- Photoshop, a lot of geometric shapes, a single eye awakening in the middle and... It, you know, having stuff like the Chomsky samples in there and mentioning AK Press and the liner notes really, for me, takes it back to stuff like Propagandi or kind of other hardcore bands at that time who were including information and materials around different political subjects uh, in part of those, you know, resources and lyrics booklets. So, yeah, I really feel like The Beyond is a very, very heavy album, but one who I think sits alongside that more kind of politically astute and sort of open punk and hardcore. Next up, the next record we're going to talk about is Salvation. And yeah, I just feel like a disclaimer at this point that basically no salvation, no fall of Ephrathah. It's as simple as that. Um, Released in October 2004 and having listened to it countless times since, I look at that date now and I think it's been 15 years since I first heard this record. And I've just listened to it and inhabited it so, so many times. And it's a real rush to kind of spend a bit of time reflecting on that. And yeah, I remember when Ephrathah was starting, we really coalesced around this period of Cult of Luna a lot, which is obviously unsurprising to anyone who's listened to us. But um, I really distinctly remembering writing the first bits of The Fall of Ephrathah in my room on campus. And it was me trying to channel a lot from this album into that. And, you know, whether I succeeded, who knows? Uh, so yes, Salvation. Um, lots of changes start to develop in Coltaloon here and it's just really, really awesome. Um, you start to see a broader range of dynamics and interplay. Um, the bass becomes hugely prominent as the kind of heavy anchor to contrast the other instruments. 
you really hear them start to play fully with having three guitar players. So there's a lot more exploration of texture and atmosphere and dynamics. Um, the grey granite block that is the beyond has moved to a wider, lighter and broader sonic palette. Um, the all white album cover is a real testament to how different it would be. And I, I love that to this day for being such a sparse and austere image. Uh, again, the music has a bit more restraint to it. There's lots of tremolo-y shimmering guitar leads, clean vocals and singing, more electronic textures. Um, the start of the album with the song Echoes, its main riff doesn't come in until five minutes and 30 seconds. And there's more of a kind of feeling of a light space around this record. It still feels quite urban and constrained, but um, you know the, the way that I see it is like, you're not out of the city yet, but perhaps you're starting to look around and looking up a bit more. Um, in terms of drums, this album really gets into the fun and super creative interplay between the hi-hat and kick that really Cult of Luna have totally made their own. The way they use their drums to give a lot of open space to their heavier sections is something that really comes out here and the interplay between snare and hi-hats alongside more muted and palm muted riffs gives a real sense of slower propulsive plodding movement to sections. Um, I kind of feel like there aren't very many post-metal bands that swing as much as Cult of Luna do. The sense of drive on the song Vague Illusions being a really good example and a song that I think is one of Cult of Luna's best and I don't think they've played live or at least that they have, they've not for a very long time. Um, the bridge and midsection really demonstrates some of the ways Salvation was stepping further from that single-minded heaviness of the beyond and opening a lot more dynamics to emphasize its heavier sections. You know, listen to the midsection of a drift, and that's just another great example of them pushing these post-rock sections with incredible guitar and drum work and one of the most insanely addictive rhythms on the entire album. Um, as I said, the album is where the bass establishes itself as the heavy linchpin of the band, and it's where a lot of the real heft of the record happens, which whilst also providing quite a bit of counter melody and, you know, just being this real anchor at the center of everything. And, you know, watching them live, I was always locked into the way the bassist and the drummers were just totally hooked together and just this total force and unit. And they were just the real ground center of everything. It has a huge effect on my own bass playing. And it really has made me think a lot more about how I use and think of bass in the context of heavy music. Um, so there's a lot of amazing things happening in terms of sound of this record and the visual imagery that I associate with it is of snow-covered highways and of being in transit and kind of large cityscapes at night, like those real kind of twilight sort of moments. And as I said, this is one of those albums that I have just really inhabited. Um, the amount of it that sits within me, every riff, every bass line, the vocals, the drum parts, the ambient textures, they are all there. It's definitely accompanied me on a, a lot of solitary walks and long bus journeys and it's one of you know my favorite albums to listen to all in one go um in terms of theme i think it's them kind of opening up some more interesting topics and starting to move to a slightly closer and more personal theme um the opening lyrics of the album are empty men without regrets caught in a vortex between false perceptions and reality dread frequencies kill the intellect and a lot of the album seems to deal with again this more personal sense of alienation or estrangement in the world we live in and I feel like there's a bit less metaphor and allegory I think the band are being braver at owning their own voice and owning their own perspective um, again less kind of dramatic and kind of raw and like more spacious more honest I think it's them really getting into the psychological effect of the world we live in and if you look at their video to the song Leave Me Here, again, there's a lot in that that 15 years on feels really prescient. And the video has a lot of interesting imagery with figures with wrenches for heads, plying weights and possessions on a lone man, walking through in empty industrial spaces surrounded by security cameras and screens reflecting this image back at them. And the video ends with the wrenches smashing these screens and cameras. And, you know, that whole image could have come from several different decades of class consciousness and struggle but it's the same core roots it's you know estrangement and alienation and I think a slight hint of some of the wider social developments that were going to occur over the next decade in terms of digital networks 
simio capitalism and commerce and those kind of things i mean again just that like that line of dead frequencies kill the intellect is just you know could be from basically now it's really 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 something and i think that other lyrics on the record get into a, a wider sense of expression and you know sometimes hopeful so again in a drift there's this line where it's like when we are drifting against the tide colliding with the very air we breathe somewhere the tracks inward must lead out a grasp of hope that defeats the will and so i think it's again trying to find a better articulation of that emotional impact and effect trying to harness it and in an album that is very angry and very heavy but with just these wider spaces and moments of calm and reflection and them trying to have more nuance and dynamics uh, expressing their music and emotions in a wider palette and i think again if you reflect back on that whole masculinity growing up with kind of harnessing that anger in your adolescence there's i feel like on this record is them making that first step to try and kind of be a bit broader in that and it's in the last song into the beyond though that i think it shows the drain that this can provoke and i feel that song has one of the best two liners about toxic toxic masculinity ever which are like you know the idea of the prison that men build upon themselves and inhabit due to our inability to engage with and deal with our emotions honestly and that line is to escape the suffering we keep our emotions at a distance so far away that our skin becomes a fortress and i just think that that line is just so so awesome and um for an, you know an end of album song it also just ends in this quite discordant and abrupt way there's not really a huge big pretty post-rock crescendo or a big cathartic moment it just has this sort of final outburst and there's so many strange harmonics and textures going on it's just really atonal and heavy but then also the final lines are let's gather in twilight in those blue reflections so you have a kind of weird discord between a super discordant atonal ending and these lines which again you know screamed and shouted seem to offer up a sense of like something else or some sort of hope so i think that's just a super interesting contrast in the final moments of it and it hints at what they were going to start to develop with the next record somewhere along the highway yeah onto somewhere along the highway and the i think in some ways the post metal record that killed post record by perfecting the sound and i think it did that through just how much more uh yeah it's just shimmering uplifting and kind of sparser wider textures and i feel like this is the record where loads of people probably kind of blame them for the amount of derivative or kind of rip off bands that happened because definitely after this album lots of bands were like outwardly ripping lots of their techniques um what i think is really interesting is they've said in interviews that this is the record that deals with particularly male loneliness and it makes i think a lot of sense in that it's the album which is their most spacious it is their most human and warm sounding it is very much an album that is pastoral and out of the city they recorded it live in a barn in kind of rural bit of Sweden and basically I think recorded it in about seven days with minimal overdubs and them just playing live in a room. And I think we'll discuss the theme in a bit, but definitely that aspect of male loneliness alongside the anger and outrage of the previous records comes together in a really sort of interesting way. So as I said, it's uh, them playing in their most spacious capacity. It has the most, pardon me, pretty moments of kind of post-rock stuff and it also has them playing at their most heavy it's got some of the most stripped down and natural dynamics and it's helped by a recording which is 
really sparse and open. And again, as I said, the band just playing together in the barn with minimal overdubs. It's really warm sounding. And again, likewise, just a huge amount of influence on me as a musician. I really think about how the intensity with how they play and kind of flaw off each other as musicians, you really can feel that coming through. And it's not just a case of letting the distortion pedal do the heavy work for you. I listen to it now and I'm still blown away by the performances and it's a real testament to them that the most human record in terms of theme has that kind of sound around it. And also literally this album is the one to listen to when somewhere along the highway. Uh, This has been my tour album for me and so many others for so many years and it's really aligned with those quiet moments in between shows and just being on the road and watching the world go by being in this really quiet, contemplative space. And I think definitely more than any other Cult of Luna record, it's one to be just enjoyed in one long go. It's really that whole kind of expansive space it inhabits is just really one to be enjoyed all in one sitting. And I feel like it basically does two kind of ascents or arcs. So first from marching to the heartbeats to back to Chapel Town. And then there's a brief respite with, and with her came the birds. And then the second with 34 going through to Dark City, Dead Men. And it really gives me chills just saying that. So let's just get into this record and this theme that they brought together around male loneliness. And, you know, again, the warmest sounding record, the most human sounding, the one in which you get the clearest sense of this is seven people playing together in a room and it being such a singular and personal one for them. So the album starts with this very nice ambient intro and clean vocals. There's a huge sense of space and these kind of quieter pulsing electronics. Over the years and since I've listened to more ambient and electronic music, I can really hear how much is going on under the surface in this track. And I think I previously only saw it really as a like quiet album intro, um, much to my disgrace. And there's a lot in there that makes it so worthy on its own feet. And it really opens up that expansive pastoral atmosphere that the rest the record has and then it crashes into Finland which has become a staple of their live sets and I think for very good reason and you know opening this plodding two drum kits in unison march and single stabbed chords it really opens up the record in amazing way and then just with so much restraint and grace it falls into this gorgeous expansive section which is one of the most melodic that they've ever done coupled with a real brain breaker of a hi-hat and snare rhythm that's propulsive but really off-kilter and it's just really really cool and when it gets heavy again it's mainly just the use of bass chords that keep the sound heavy and grounded whilst the guitar parts shiver upwards you really get that sense of being out of the city um, the light pollution has disappeared and that all you have left is starlight and so something that has really come to light the more I've listened to Somewhere Along the Highway is how much the droning, ethereal ambience of the album is part of this whole record. And it's not just quiet section before heavy section. It really builds and seeks the atmosphere of the album together and it just keeps that sense of momentum going. With Back to Chapel Town, it has such an ethereal and strange opening minute. And then it enters some of the heaviest material on the whole record. And Again, just this section that has this monstrous bass line that just keeps pulsing onwards. It's just really damn good. And then again with the, you know, the middle track and with her came the birds. It's them totally restrained and stripped back. Clean vocals. It sounds more like something perhaps that Low would put out, but has a lot of kind of weight and eerie ambience to it. Um, so again, a kind of perfect sort of breathing point before tracks five six and seven and again the last 36 minutes of this record it blows my mind if you were the person who wrote these three songs because they're just astonishing and so the first of them 34 it has just this real haze to it there's these really long drawn out intros and huge ringing bass notes that just sustain forever and the way that the electronic textures are incorporated into this it's just really subtle and The majority of it is actually this really lulled and hazy, dreamy section with kind of clean vocals mixed quite far back and slow shimmering drum parts and a very lilting, almost kind of hopeful, uplifting feel to it. And it it transcends nicely into the next song, which is Dim. And this is the first time I think you really feel like they have a song that's 
uplifting or kind of a different type of reflective and peaceful mood. And there's so much colour to this record. And I think the first four minutes of Dim are just such a nice example of it. It has this warm and hazy feeling of just looking out of train windows on a summer evening, just a, a lot of orange and yellow and magenta, just feeling at peace and at rest. There's just so much amazing instrumentation and playing and them all just really serving the song on this album. And that's something that Cult of Luna are just so good at as players is they're all amazing musicians, but no one is overplaying. No one is trying to kind of do more than it is needed. And so that amount of restraint and dare I say it, like tenderness they use when playing on these tracks is just so, so awesome. Um, and then it contrasts to the final song on the record, the 15 minute uh, epic Dark City Dead Men, which really, you know, they closed their set of it ever since for good reason. There is no way you can play anything else after you've played the song because it is just the end of everything. And, and again, me to kind of uh, describe it is really, really hard to do, but it's just got this dark, ongoing, heavy feel and basically... The last 10 minutes of it or so are based around one kind of droning guitar part that then just builds and builds and builds and has these amazing sections that when, after quite a long build-up, the final band just kicks in and it's like all of them playing, the two drum parts start connecting again. It is just so, so awesome to hear. And again, I think around this whole like male loneliness theme this kind of sense of you've been out in nature or the pastoral and returning to the dark city and lines like the landscape has changed you don't recognize me these pictures slowly fade memories wither they all are gone further down the steps get steeper you haunt me in my dreams i let go and fall deeper this will be the end of me and I think what actually this album, although that sounds a bit on the nose initially, is really this is actually about, this record's about an articulation of an inner journey and inner self-discovery and inner growth. And I think that's reflected in a lot of the amounts, the times the word I is used in their lyrics, whereas previously the gaze, I think, or the lens of the uh, lyricist was really being outward or kind of not being so internal. And with the amount of eyes there are in the lyrics, I think there's a lot of returning in this album. And, you know, initially you look at the lyrics and think perhaps this is like an album about the end of a relationship. And, you know, for many years I thought it was perhaps a breakup album or one about the end of a relationship. But I also now wonder on a deeper level if this is actually a reflection of the narrator or self. And what if it's not a relationship with another person, but with themselves? And the return is such a constant theme in this album, like I've walked a road that led me back to you. And again, this album is so about self-discovery and self-actualization, trying to get a better understanding of where all that anger and pain and rage has come from. And that, you know, this journey from the beyond, from salvation to somewhere along the highway is that process. Raging against the world and raging against and within yourself and just trying to get a better understanding of that. And so it's that sense of return that is also what's keeping me coming back to these albums. And I feel like those three records have a real sense of conclusion to them, wherein the last track on each particular album, the last lines are all about falling. So further ends with further on, closing in, falling down, giving in to the beyond. Then on Salvation, the last track, Into the Beyond, is we are coming out as one. That is when we arrive. That is when we realise. That is when we fall down. And then the last lyrics on Dark City Dead Men from Somewhere Along the Highway is I let go and fall deeper and this will be the end of me. And again, I think the end of you in that, not in the like really OTT dramatic sense, but a kind of wider self-discovery of self and letting go is a really interesting area to look at.
And so, of course, after those records, Cult of Luna released further records, and one of them, the one after Somewhere Along the Highway, Eternal Kingdom, has, again, it's another kind of forest album, and that's sort of the way I think about it. Um, and some of the material from it live is still so awesome, but I think it was them really trying to get back into gear or discover a new sound after Somewhere Along the Highway. And I think as an album in terms of it, how long it sustains, it, I feel like, just doesn't have that same sense of momentum or power as the ones before it did. And interestingly, after that, they started to work on, after quite a long hiatus, material for an album called Vertical, which is, again, far more urban, takes a lot of influence from the film Metropolis, was then playing around with way more electronic textures, and I really loved that record as well, and I thought there was a lot of cool stuff they were hinting at with elements of dubstep and elements of more kind of synths and electronic textures and they in fact did an EP called Vertical 2 which was them able to explore that electronic side of them a bit more and in a way that I really wish that they'd done a third EP and it was them going full like right no more guitars we're just going to do a synth record because I'd just love to hear what they would do with that but actually um, they have not done that and are now working on a new record and have released a single from it called The Silent Man. And it's really interesting to hear that a lot of that material sounds, you know, the material from that single so far, I mean, is it sounds like a return to these kind of pastoral records, like somewhere along the highway, The Silent Man evokes a sense of male loneliness again. So I'm really excited for that new record as and when it comes out. And I'm pleased that they've returned in a way to exploring that kind of stuff. So we'll see what they come up with. Cult of Luna have evolved from their roots as a hardcore band and developing their sound to something far beyond it and you know taking that reflection and frustration at the state of the world and being a conduit for processing and understanding it and in turn understanding yourself better in that process is my reason for thinking that they're the hardcore band who became really awesome at their instruments and grew through it into something else and the reason I'm trying to emphasize that kind of thread of the hardcore scene connection at the beginning of the podcast was that whole kind of spirit of DIY and self-discovery and self-exploration of, you know, always questioning and finding your own path and how they took that expression of emotion. I think that's really what links them to hardcore in that way. And they're the band that has let me grow through hardcore in that phase of my life into something else. And I really want to spend just a little bit of bit of time talking about this idea of growing through rather than out of something and I think it's really easy and understandable in your late 20s or early 30s to just be like oh yeah I grew up or I grew out of punk or I grew out of hardcore uh, or whatever perhaps was that formative scene or scenes that you were involved in in your adolescence and for me growing through feels like a far more accurate and nuanced take on that process or at least for me it recognizes bands or artists or particular inspirations during those years who still have a resonance and impact i still feel something when i listen to them or discover and hear new things whilst i'm listening to them and this in turn has opened me up to other influences or ideas and i feel like it's a more philosophical approach to the whole process where you remain curious and one where you want to focus on what all of the things you've brought with you from this time rather than the focus on the things you've left behind. I think we live in an era where like self-improvement is very much almost a gospel or religion of our times and we're all, you know, there's a lot of like social media and various kind of uh, dialogues around, you know, getting rid of toxic people from your life and like becoming a real minimalist and getting loads rid of loads of stuff. And I feel like sometimes in that process, particularly when it's not done with enough emotional nuance or depth it feels almost just like cutting out stuff that you don't want to deal with and I feel like it's more important to just carry some of these ideas and then apply them to other areas of interest in your life as you continue to develop and to grow so yeah you're you know try and find your own path do your own thing by being attentive and then just really start to 
ask those super important questions like, are you satisfied? Is this what you really want from your life? And also I think perhaps being a bit wiser and having more of that sense of acceptance and finding your place in a wider view of the world, being less out of step with the world. And so one of the things that has really come to light to me through that process of just trying to be more attentive is just to understand fundamentally that there is no fixed peace or calm. Uh, that is just something that is a daily practice and trying to further and understand and focus your own lens of the world, how you act in wider life. And if that if something is amiss or awry, then you should try and find that thing and change it or do it differently. And so, of course, this links to mental health. And as someone who struggled with mental health and stress and anxiety for a really long time, I fundamentally believe that this band has helped me so much in terms of dealing with that. Heavy, aggressive music lets you perform a kind of silent scream. Like you may be quietly going in onto your morning commute, listening on your headphones, but you're listening to someone screaming and shouting and that can be really cathartic. And of course, there's an extra layer in terms of who is the person doing that screaming in terms of class and race and gender and so on. But I think as a person, if you get into heavier music and you find that anchor or that inner space within, it provides this sort of double layer of articulating your inner frustration and anger whilst also making you the recipient and receiver of someone else's. In essence, you are not alone. It's often why I think a lot of people who are into this type of music are actually quite quiet and introverted people in real life because you have this outlet and this world that you inhabit that lets you rage and release on the inside. And also loads of heavy music fans are just me mega nerds, which is really cool. And having that kind of catharsis is just so essential. And to have this band who's articulated and centered that frustration and anger in my late teens, through my twenties and still do it in my thirties is just amazing. You know, I have to reflect on it alongside, I've been socialized and raised as a man and definitely white and middle class and all of the privileges and dynamics that that entails whilst also navigating my own struggles that's still something that I'm going through and to center back into this idea around male loneliness and men imprisoning themselves within not articulating their emotions or feelings just burying it inside and it's just so essential that men do get better at opening up about our mental health and general emotions with other men it is genuinely life-saving and it has to be viewed alongside taking responsibility for ourselves and taking the burden off, you know, the traditional caregivers and listeners in our lives. Um, emotional labor as a phrase has become something that I think has been really horribly overused, but it's central idea still feels useful in terms of analyzing people who are viewed traditionally or socialized to be seen as feminine and thus as a carer or to someone who has to deal with men's bullshit basically. I think that anyone who is outside of that kind of traditional category of like stiff upper lip, stoical straight man really has to deal with a lot of this shit a lot of the time. And, you know, I find those categories around masculine and feminine traits really restrictive and not helpful, but we also have to take the world as it currently is. And unfortunately, a lot of the world still sees things in terms of that really horrendous strict binary. And so part of the work and effort to undo that is I think in around these broad stereotypical ideas of men aren't good at talking about emotions and stress and mental health with other men and turning that on that on its head and undoing them by becoming good at talking about emotions and stress and it also doesn't need to be this huge outburst or this huge deep dive of psychoanalysis or therapy or self-help but i think really just learning to actively listen and to be there for people and develop this form of everyday empathy that takes people where they're at and where they're at at that time and also isn't necessarily about fixing these issues or being solutions based which again I think is quite a stereotypical male trait it's easy to see uh, that these are problems that just need to be solved and kind of fixed and sometimes I think it's far more just about letting someone be heard and so, yeah, it's so interesting reflecting on this in terms of hardcore and punk, because you'd think that those communities around those music scenes would be so much better at it. And, you know, some things are developing, but you just also have to take a very, very long view of it. And I think it really fits with that whole, I'm 20 years old and raging at the world and injustice within it and that whole part of your life and how 
That's actually a really good distraction from you having to develop your own language and abilities to understand, recognize and articulate your anger in ways that are not dangerous to you or to those around you. You know, getting a bit of a better handle on where all of that self-righteous ire and fury is really, really coming from. And that, I think, is the crux of a lot of it. Like, hardcore for me and for many others is just that first step. And like all first steps, it should be part of a much, much longer journey. For me, it really shows the power of music and how much it can heal. I really learned how to listen and play play music via Cult of Luna. I would have not done any of the creative things or be in any of the bands or go on tour or any of those things I've stuck, any of that stuff that I've done. I wouldn't have really understood or developed my ways of handling my anger or other emotions. And like to try and summarize and articulate how much impact they have is just so hard for me to do and something that I found really overwhelming and emotional as I wrote this. And, you know, as my kind of concluding thoughts on it, it's that the thing that Cult of Luna do is provide this ability to shut out the world and to be annihilated by sound and able to enter this contemplative space and to just process and channel a huge amount of emotions. And in order to do that, to then return to the world, to go back outside with a much more focused clarity and confidence. And that's the journey they take you on and how it can inspire you to live a more authentic and or honest life. They make you return to yourself. Thanks so much for listening.